0: Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share a session from the 2019 Pod Partnership Opportunities and Drug Delivery Conference, where Merck's Dr. Alan Templeton discussed the company's methods of identifying and utilizing emerging drug delivery technologies, as well as the importance of flexible manufacturing. The 2020 Pod Conference will take place October 8th and 9th in Boston. Enjoy the podcast. Morning, uh, good morning, fellow pod attendees. <laughs> okay, great. Trying to get a little bit of the energy going this morning with a little uh, give and take there. So I was really glad to hear what the uh, the panelists had to say. And it's really exciting to see all the innovative drug delivery that's going on within academia and the translation of that into uh, small companies. I know, you know, from a big company like Merck we need a lot of innovation going on in the drug delivery space coming from academia coming from a small company ventures. so it's really exciting to see that um, the other thing that resonated to me at the end of the panelist presentation here was uh, the concept of playing and failing and we do a lot of failing in big pharma uh, we do some playing too um, so we like to have fun uh, particularly when it comes to my group in drug delivery and devices, we, we do like to play. Um, particularly, and I'll show you some examples of, of why that's important. I'm going to actually go through this deck actually relatively quickly so I can take some time for questions from the audience and we can have a, have a bit of a give and take. So I've got the next couple of slides I've borrowed from my friends at Pharma Circle who are here today. And what you'll see uh, on this slide, um, is the growth in pipeline molecule and type versus year. And what you can see, there's a couple of interesting things I'd like to point out. You know, one thing is that over the last five years, you've seen basically a doubling overall in the pipeline in terms of number of assets. And while there's been this surge, as is noted on the slide in biologics, and biologics being broadly defined across all those modalities listed at the bottom, which by any means are not homogeneous, Small molecules haven't taken that much of a hit. Small molecules are still really important. And you can see there's been tremendous growth even in the small molecule pipelines as well. So it's, it's been, it's, it's instead of, a storyline is, instead of growth at the expense of small molecules, it's growth in small molecules and growth in other modalities. And what's true, and I think the panelists touched on this as well, is that when you start to really go beyond, particularly the last comments from Dr. Langer, When you go beyond and and what the future holds uh, in terms of drug delivery, uh, what we know is that some of these uh, more complex modalities, and was mentioned cell therapy, gene therapy, mRNA, siRNA, are going to prompt uh, the need for new and different innovation in terms of drug delivery. The other thing I'd like to call out in relation to just kind of how the pipelines are looking And I believe what I'm saying uh, while I represent Merck uh, and work at Merck, I think that what I'm saying is actually true across the industry uh, and applies to really all pharma in general in terms of the evolving uh, drug pipelines. I think these comments largely apply to just from talking to peers and other big pharma companies. This is kind of how the landscape is looking in general. Some companies are more bought in or less bought in. But nonetheless, all are evolving in this t- type of direction. So what this slide speaks to is, is how the ev- evolution of modality and treatment area has important implications for drug delivery technology. And I think that kind of goes uh, hand in hand with the previous slide. Again, borrowed a slide from PharmaCircle here. When you look at oral technologies, we're still going to have a need for amorphous dispersions. We're still going to have a need for controlled release and modified release technologies in the context of oral delivery. But this surge in biologics and other alternate modalities, expansive modalities around uh, the, uh, the chemical and biological space, leads to this great surge in injections. And you can see here again almost a doubling in, in the pop on versus route versus years. And the big growths in oral. Uh, there's, there's some uh, growth in oral. It's a little bit, a little bit flat, but a little, some growth there. But the big surge is in injection. And then this, this pie chart over to the side talks about, as you all know, and again I'm speaking to the, preaching to the choir here. Injectable systems are not of one flavor. There are all kinds of different injectable approaches uh, that expend, extend far beyond uh, just uh, IV for injection. And looking at systems and targeted injections and depot and et cetera. And I'll give a couple of examples of those in the talk. So it's, while it's characterized in this plot as somewhat a, a single category, and that's to some extent true, the real story is there's a lot of different complexity and diversity behind uh, different types of inject- injectable drug delivery technologies. And there's a need for more innovation. And I think uh, Gio mentioned, for example, oral delivery for biologics, not, while well, not an injection route, would take advantage of being able to look at different routes of delivery for traditional materials that have been developed and produced and delivered via uh, an injectable, injectable route. So a lot of diversity here, a lot of diversity in this landscape. So I'll give a couple of examples. And one of the things, as I'll give, I'm just going to give, show you a couple of examples today to kind of whet your appetite on some of the things we're doing. Um, in drug, drug delivery. I will highlight that we have some other things going on that, we'll, that I won't have time to get into and share with you. Uh, and I can say that in my 20 years at Merck, uh, we have never experienced as much of diversity uh, in drug delivery as we see today. From respiratory to implantables, to injectables, uh, to sRNA, mRNA, running the whole gamut. And the interesting thing and the opportunistic view we take at the company is that we're willing to uh, follow wherever the biology takes us in terms of uh, conquering disease. And so, and and that often includes, uh, you know, research in our own discovery laboratories, but it often involves also partnering with other companies and bringing in technology, bringing in molecules. And oftentimes that means we need to partner with a corresponding drug delivery approach as well so a lot of different uh, diversity in terms of our approach Uh, we like to say at Merck research labs that great drugs can change the world Uh, and for that to be true uh, you need a target you need chemical matter of some sort or biological matter and you need a drug delivery system so this example here takes advantage of some of those aspects and you'll see how it all comes together so, we have a molecule that we're, in, that we're developing called islatravir, also known as MK8591. It's a really a, an interesting uh, molecule for us in the sense that it represents a first-in-class nucleoside reverse transcriptase, transcriptase, uh, sorry, transcriptase translocation inhibitor, a bit of a tongue twister. I'm used to, used to referring it to as NRTTI. What's really neat about this molecule uh, is that it has really exquisite potency, unprecedented potency, in, in fact. Uh, it's been, and it also has a long half-life. And so we're looking to pair this com, uh, molecule uh, with other classes of uh, anti-HIV medications. We're looking to pair it in the context of once-daily treatment, once-weekly treatment, once-monthly treatment. We're looking at, on its own or in combination with other assets, being a Q-monthly prevention molecule, we're looking at developing it as an implant for prevention. And we're looking at uh, a number of different, uh, and a number of different dose ranges, because, because of its long half-life and potency, we can vary dose from looking at somewhere on the order of one milligram in a dosage form, up to 100 milligrams, to affect different sort of presentations for the product. So we're really excited about this molecule. Uh, This data I'm showing you, uh, we'll show you in the next slide or two, was presented at an HIV conference earlier this year. So one one example of drug delivery I'll share uh, is to focus on this implant that we're looking at. Uh, And so this particular implant is based on Merck technology that goes actually back some time uh, and is used for Implanon and Nexplanon, which if you know those products, what those products are used for is it's a polymeric implant uh, the dimension shown here and shown in the palm of the hand. And these uh, implants are used for the prevention of pregnancy. And they s- contain a small amount of a hormone uh, which is released over time. Uh, there's an applicator which is used, it's shown here, uh, that's allowed to, that's used to implant uh, the actual uh, device. And the... Um, Typically, the, these formulations are rather simple. It's a polymer plus drug. Now the release mechanism can vary depending on the molecule and the release mechanism we're targeting, targeting for is somewhat different than that for implant and explant. Um, one of the things that when you look at starting a project like this is you think about what could the PK look like over time? And so I'm showing him on, on this chart here, simulated human PK profiles as a function of time. That gave us some indication uh, versus the po dosage form q weekly that this is something we might have a shot at doing i'm going to show you data that shows that we're promising data that shows you that we think we actually can to pull this off so um, one of the things that we wanted to understand in the context of these polymeric implants is is could we reproducibly and robustly control the release of this drug over time from this type of polymeric implant and so um, we in fact show in these charts or, or pictures here uh, that we can do that. And so the mechanism, I'll start over to the left. The mechanism really is, um, speaks to the mechanism of drug release here. And so we have the drug uh, showing up in those dark green channels over to the left in this picture embedded in this matrix of EVA9. So that's ethyl vinyl acetate. And what happens over time is as the molecule uh, dissolves, and elutes out from this implant, pores begin to form, and from and then as 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 we proceed through drug release, uh, overall we form this very porous structure as the drug is removed, and that's somewhat going to define the the release mechanism as a function of time. So it's very much uh, a release mechanism which is found by dissolution from this porous matrix, and a radial release. So if you look at the images shown here, these XRCT images, you can see going from no drug release up to 18, up to 100%, you can see these pores have formed within the context of these implant structures. If you further look at the helium ion image here, you show, uh, we, we can see that how it looks like at 100% drug release. So this is an approach we have to use because the, water, the molecule is highly water soluble and immiscible with EVA, so this provides the opportunity to do this pore forming implant. And that is a different mechanism than what we've used for some other molecules we have in development, including, uh, it's a different approach for metonogesterol, for example. So how do these actually work? What's the data telling us so far? So, re- so far we've data for a 62 milligram implant. Um, for, and what the data says is that, it looks like we could get it for at least 12 months, potentially up to 16 months. And so what this data shows here, is a plot that shows the concentration in plasma of a slatrophere as a function of time uh, versus what would be needed to control uh or the the target the target being the red dashed line and then over to the right is the concentration of the molecule in in terms of picomoles per 10 to the six cells in terms of uh, of what's required to uh support um the, the concentration at a cellular level, so what we see here is our projection would be uh, that we would have adequate coverage over that time, and then we actually see that playing out in the data, uh, as you see here, the mean observed plasma data the dotted lines. so we, we only have about twelve weeks worth of data so far, uh, but based on the release rate, based on what we understand about the mechanism, we anticipate that this would be able to to actually achieve an implant. Uh, there would be at least uh, 16 months in duration. Now, so what we again hope to use this implant for is is prevention of of HIV, and it can be used uh, in. You can one can imagine it can be used in the context of pregnancy prevention and HIV prevention in a single implant, and that's something we're striving to achieve as well. Um, the other thing that I would I would note is um, in terms of a treatment approach. Um, for for this particular disease. That's something we're also looking at. It becomes more challenging because the standard of care is at least a three drug, potentially a true, and moving to a two drug regimen, uh, usually of two different mechanisms. Uh, So it's hard to achieve that. We're seeking that second partner molecule that will allow us to create a single implant for, for treatment. But that is something that's still a bit off. The second example I'll tell you about is around immuno-oncology and enabling patient convenience. And I think that I like what uh, some of the panelists had to say about this. They spoke to uh, patient-centered drug design, patient-centered delivery. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I think this example in terms of thinking about um, immuno-oncology speaks to a little bit about where that field needs to move in terms of patient centricity. So we all know about some of the recent headlines. Here's just a scattering of them from, from cancer immunotherapy. It's actually been quite exciting. It's, it's exciting to see Merck at the forefront of this evolution uh, in treatment, a uh, revolution, in fact, of treatment. And um, lots of it, lot of suppress. And so all of you are very familiar with that. This next slide, Seeks to give a little bit of an example of, just gives a flavor. And I know this is a lot of information on one slide, but what I'm trying to depict here is just showing the uptake of anti PD1 and anti PDL1 uh, as, a, as a mechanism within the United States for these various, and how fast this has evolved, right? And so what you see here is the number of different approvals in the context of different diseases, different cancers specifically. Uh, as a function of different uh, molecules. And so pembrolizumab, Merck's compound, is the ones, ones in light blue. And so you can kind of see how fast this has moved since 2014. And so I think at Merck we have over 1,000 clinical trials ongoing with pembrolizumab at this moment. Um, and all different contexts, all different partners. What's true about pembrolizumab is, and this is true for all of these of these. Uh, uh, compounds is they've been, or these uh, antibodies, they've all been really impactful in terms of changing the landscape for, um, for, for particular cancers. And, and I'm giving one example, just to paint a picture, is non-small cell lung cancer. That field has completely changed. And what was unexpected uh, was the impact of PEMBRO in combination with standard of care chemotherapy. And so now as a first-line treatment, and this has happened very rapidly over the last couple of years, uh, the standard of care in non-small cell lung cancer has moved to PEMBRO plus plus chemotherapy, usually a true drug combo chemotherapy. And then as the patient, if the patient is able to respond to therapy, typically the chemo is removed and then the patient is put on PEMBRO as a maintenance therapy for approximately two years. And again, right now, no one knows exactly because this is we're gaining data in real time, what the long-term impact will be in terms of patient longevity. Now, we can say this, though, that versus standard of care alone, that Pembro in combination with chemotherapy boost overall response, whether it's partial or or otherwise, at least 50% versus 30% of standard of care. That's a big jump. Now, the thing that I'll point out with that, though, at the same time is to say, there's still 50% still left on the table in terms of opportunity versus this particular cancer. So what are we doing? Uh, we, along with a lot of folks who are working in this field, are looking to find uh, agents that will boost the efficacy of, key, of, key, of these these agents, particularly in our case, pembrolizumab. And so we're looking for to combo pembro with a number of different agents to to extend that 50% response rate, for example, in non-small cell lung cancer, up to 70, 80%, right? And that's true if you look at the different, I gave that as an example, but if you look at what's true about all of these cancers is that we don't have, you know, a complete response and a complete knockout blow to any of them. And maybe we won't. A lot of it has to do with the tumor microenvironment, the specific genetics of the tumor, and the immune system and how that relates. But what we wanna do is we wanna extend the efficacy of of these agents. And so we're looking to partner. So in, in terms of some of those partnering opportunities, many of you are aware of some of these areas. Merck is heavily involved in exploring a lot of these areas and going from the immune checkpoint inhibitors over to the top right, to looking at now oncolytic viruses, T cell therapies, uh, other monoclonal antibodies that can be used in combination that have potentially orthogonal or parallel or some other form of synergy that might be offered in combination with a checkpoint inhibitor. And so this space is being rap- you know explored extensively. That's the point of those thousand clinical trials that I mentioned. So some of those are easier to, combina- to combo in, a for- in the context of a formulation than others. Uh, When you start talking about cell therapy or gene therapy, that might look quite different. But in the context of a monoclonal antibody in combination with a monoclonal antibody, this is something that we're looking at extensively to simplify and improve the overall healthcare provider experience. So rather than providing two individual products uh, that would be then co-administered or separately administered, we're looking to provide co-formulations. And so some of the things that one has to consider, uh, some of the things that one has to think about are, uh, antibody-to-excipient sort of interactions, antibody-antibody interactions, uh, is and in thinking about um, stability and thinking about physical stability, chemical stability, and in the context of some of the data shown on the right. So this is something we're looking at fairly extensively. Another opportunity in this space that we're looking at, and what I showed you in that previous chart is this massive uptake of different uh, agents, and I showed about five or six anti-PD1 and anti-PDL1s on that slide. What's true is that, there is that there's about 25, anywhere between 25 to 50, depending on the estimates, of these particular uh, agents in development. Are they? Are they? Dif- how are they differentiated from one another? Are they differentiated clinically? Time will tell. Um, but one would—it's a very crowded field. So one can imagine, as the field matures, what's been important through the first five years of the immuno-oncology revolution won't be true in the next five or 10 years. So that's where I think a lot of folks uh, in this audience uh, and folks, places like where I work, are thinking hard about product differentiation and what is going to be the next enabling approach for drug delivery that's going to extend patient access and benefit to patients beyond putting someone in the chair within within the context of a clinical oncology clinic. Now, having said that, one of the things that's important is that how how this field has evolved is these clinical cancer clinics. And that is largely because, as you all know, uh, some of the grievous side effects associated with chemotherapy. So patient monitoring in those settings has been important. Will it be true going forward? How to change and evolve that clinical practice to, for example, to move toward more you know at home delivery or patient uh, non provider administered um, uh, immuno oncology agents that we 'll have to see because there 's both the dogma and the, the field of medicine, but then there's also the real data associated with these compounds. And are they using combination of chemotherapy? Is there ever a point where they're used without chemotherapy? And we have enough antibodies alone, and uh, monoclonal antibodies alone that we can then just expect a cocktail to, to work. So a lot of different questions to ask. Um, a lot of payer and provider sort of considerations, but we think this is an important area to explore next. So in terms of subcutaneous delivery, uh, we're looking at, obviously, there's the the formulation considerations, biophysical stability, device considerations, um, novel excipients. And what I didn't mention earlier, um, and I should have touched on, especially given this audience, but I think it was a little bit implicit or implied, was when you think about the growth, rapid growth and sterile injectable products, Obviously, all those come with, or many of those will come with devices and brings up a lot of opportunity for innovation in drug device combinations. And that's true when you think about subcutaneous delivery as well. You have to think about the pharmacokinetics, you have to think about the immunogenicity. We've got, so there's a lot of complexity associated with the problem, but a lot of opportunity as well. So how, do we, how are we gonna do all this in the future? And I'll leave you with on this before I take questions. One of, the th- one of the things that I find really interesting about the whole field and how it's evolving in terms of drug delivery is, when you think about how Big Pharma has operated in the past, Big Pharma has largely survived and been very effective at producing products for primary care physicians. And that has, leads to you to think about once daily uh, tablets, those once daily tablets, have been very effective. They, they require a certain scale of manufacturing capacity and capability. That's largely what Big Pharma's manufacturing footprint looks like today. It's geared toward making, it's geared toward making formulations and producing drug delivery uh, systems, largely tablets, for that population and for that market. The whole market's changing. And so in the future we're looking at, instead of high volume, relatively lower cost products we're looking at, lower volume, higher cost products. So just a a paradigm shift entirely in terms of thinking about manufacturing in the future. And so we're thinking a lot about how to develop a different manufacturing footprint and flexible manufacturing. And it starts with thinking about the knowledge build, innovative designs, digital enablement, different production technologies uh, to be able to effectively commercialize and launch these types of products. I think that's a That's something that one has to think about when you think about some of the drug delivery technologies that are being discussed at this conference, things that we're looking at as well. Uh, It requires a different way of approaching approaching facilities and infrastructure uh, so that we don't have, so we're able to do this in a cost-effective way. So I'll just leave you with that, and I'll take a few questions. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Pod Drug Delivery Conference. The 2020 meeting will take place October 8th and 9th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. With the Lucky Landslides, Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.